we have to be open to the idea that maybe data will deteriorate in coming months and we could start getting a sense of what the real trajectory is. But for now, we actually have data re-accelerating. It's going in the opposite direction of what many people were expecting, which just points to the fact that we are still in an inflationary environment and the Fed's quote unquote job is not done. Welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Cameron Dawson. Uh, she is the CIO at New Edge Wealth. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I kind of want to dive right into it here. And maybe we can start pretty high level uh, and then kind of dig into some of the details. But, you know, right now, I think markets are kind of digesting, uh, you know, to use pretty simplistic terms and language, if we're going to have a hard landing, uh, a soft landing or no landing at all. Uh, so maybe we could just kind of start there and sort of get your get your thoughts. Yeah, I think the first thing is that this construct about landings, we all might be pretty misplaced in using it simply because mm. it seems that it has this absoluteness about it. We get one of these three and that's it. And it kind of misses the time factor that really needs to be considered anytime we're thinking about how monetary policy impacts the real economy. So what I'm essentially saying is that just because we don't have some kind of landing today doesn't mean that we won't have one at some point in the future and that all of us just want to have the answer immediately, but it could take multiple years for the true impacts of the Fed's policy to work its way through into the real economy. And that's what we have seen at many different cycles, that it's not an immediate kind of reaction function. And we know that there are these long and variable lags. The Fed talks about them. Uh, but I think the reality here is that for now, the data doesn't suggest an imminent recession. So we would define imminent as sometime th in this first half of the year. And that we have to be open to the idea that maybe data will deteriorate in coming months and we could start getting a sense of what the real trajectory is. But for now, we actually have data re-accelerating. It's going in the opposite direction of what many people were expecting. So for now, it says no imminent recession. But then when we start thinking about what's the pathway then for growth and earnings looking out six months from now or 12, 18 months from now, then that's where we have to have an open mind to say we have to be data dependent. We could see this deterioration start to work its way through. And then that's where we'll have to be considering what that landing scenario will be. But for now, we don't have any evidence to say that we're in it or it's immediate. So speaking about that kind of heating up, is that something that we should be worried about just because you know, the Fed's new kind of super core inflation, right, which is X energy food and housing is actually uh, reaccelerated in January. Mm -hmm. And it's hot and it's hotter than what it was in in December. And we also had a couple of other indication. We had really hot retail sales. Um, we had uh, a big uh, jobs um, kind of surprise to the upside and even like used car prices, right, which is kind of the hallmark of that, uh, you know, early pandemic era, you know, uh, inflation is starting to tick back up. So is this something that we should be worried about? Do you think this trickles back into the Fed's uh, standpoint on monetary policy? 
Well, very much so. And that's why you've seen such a violent reaction within the bond market really through Mm. the month of February in repricing what its expectations are from the Fed. And it was one of our main concerns as we started getting into the January months is or January weeks is that you weren't seeing the data be low enough on inflation or weak enough on growth to suggest an imminent pivot by the Fed to accommodation, which is what the bond market was already pricing in, which meant that the the Fed would have to be even more dovish than this very dovish kind of stance by the bond market for the bond market to continue to see a rally in 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 yields with yields falling, which just meant to us that the expectations were really high for the Fed to become very easy. And the fact that this data has come in so strong and so hot from an inflation front really would suggest that the Fed has very few essentially degrees of freedom to pivot towards an easing, which is why you've seen the pricing for the terminal rate for the Fed funds go. It was sub 4% just a few weeks ago. Now it's well above 5% and actually above the Fed's own projection right now in the dot plot for the terminal rate. And then all those rate cuts that were baked into the back half of 2023 have started being priced out. Just three weeks ago, there was 50 basis points of cuts priced in, and now it's sitting at about 15 basis points. So clearly there's been this reaction by the bond market to wake up to the Fed's message. And one of the things that we were flagging was that at the end of, or through the second half of 2022, the disinflation that we saw was actually rather narrow, meaning that there were a couple components that drove the majority of the disinflation. So things like gasoline prices falling 40% in the back half of 22 or used car prices being the key thing that was pulling durable goods prices down. And starting to see those two key components, as well as a few others, actually start to turn the corner, and meaning that the disinflation in those components was starting to turn into reinflation. And that we were starting to see early signs of higher prices in things like ISM manufacturing, ISM Mm. services, those both going up for the first time since April of 22. They rose in January. So that was giving you some early indications that the disinflation that really was the key driver of more benign markets in the second half of last year was starting to fade and go the other direction, which in a in kind of a cheeky way, we said, we think that Powell actually top ticked disinflation, meaning (laughs) that the disinflation we saw over the last six months may be starting to fade. Now, I would say it's important to consider as we go into the February data on CPI, we get it on March 14th, is to remember that it will be sensitive to gasoline prices, which have fallen some, but as you pointed out very rightly, there's this big component component of services, X housing, X energy, X food, so XXX, <laughs> um, the super core that did show a reacceleration, which just points to the fact that we are still in an inflationary environment and the Fed's quote unquote job is not done. And remember, Powell's been telling us that they're going to keep at it until the job is done. So our expectation is that they're they're keeping at it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I guess my, my question to you there is we, we know that there is some period of time in between when monetary policy gets enacted and when we actually start feeling that in the economy. 
my, you know, my sort of memory of that time period is about 12 to 18 months. The Fed, you know, basically started started hiking, right, or changed their policy or indicated that they were going to change their policy end of 2021. You know, my question to you is, we would assume, right, based on history, that we either should have started to, to feel the effects there, or we should be looking to feel it later this year. Do you think that that, you know, basically history is a good indicator of when we should finally start to really feel the impacts of that monetary tightening? Or, or how long do we have to wait here? Well, the problem is that the range of times from the first hike to an eventual recession or slowdown is incredibly wide. So the averages can be rather misleading because there's not as if it's all clustered close together. And the example is back from pre-great financial crisis, Fed starts raising rates in 2004. They stop raising rates in 2006. They hold them flat and unemployment doesn't start going up until 2007. And then when you think about it in terms of the most interest rate sensitive sector in the economy, which would have been at that time housing, um, and housing being the house of cards that it was, so Mm. fragile, built on so much leverage, so sensitive to liquidity and low rates. Fed raises in 2004. Housing sentiment doesn't peak until 2005. And then you don't actually see a peak in housing employment until 2006. So there, there is, even in the interest rate sensitive sectors, an incredible lag between policy changing and then soft data sentiment changing, picking up on some of these slowdowns, and then that real lagging data in employment changing, which is why I think that it's that still that continued data dependence, which is that just because we're not seeing the weakness within consumer spending or the weakness within the employment economy doesn't mean it won't eventually come. And I think, you know, like there's one other interesting thing to throw out in this is that, you know, even though the Fed has raised rates so much, loan growth has held in okay. And you've seen consumers be very eager to return to the housing market whenever mortgage rates have dropped even just a little bit. And so I don't know if we've reached the point where it's so tight, so restrictive that you're slamming a slamming your foot on the brake yet, which would argue, and it's it's a it's a probably a debate in and of itself, um, argue for a higher uh, a higher long run neutral rate, which just means that the Fed's projection of two and a half percent for the neutral rate may be too low. And we should be watching the dot plot to see if there's any dot defectors of people Mm. in the very far right side of that dot plot, seeing if they're starting to move that rate higher. So I think that there's really no historical way to say this is exactly when we're going to have a recession. And in our view, probably the best indicator that 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 one is imminent is when the two-year yield really starts breaking down. And it's been that indicator that prices in imminent rate cuts um, and very aggressive ones that usually is the sign that things are starting to, you know, the wheels are starting to come off. So as soon as long as two-year yields are still making new highs, uh, we think that that six-month call on recession is, is too soon to make. As you just said, just reiterating here that, yeah, the two-year does not look to be uh, peaking anytime soon. It still seems pretty robust and making new highs. You know, my, my question for you, Cameron, is how would you score, because you, you often say, right, the, the bond market is the single source of truth, right, when it comes to global markets. Um, but also, you know, going rewinding the clock back to 2021, 
the bond market was extremely wrong about what the Fed's reaction was going to be to inflation, which seems pretty obvious in hindsight now. How would you kind of score the performance of the bond market as a as a predictor? And do you think it's going to continue uh, to behave as it has in the past? D minus. <laughs> Look, the bond market was just as wrong about inflation and the path of the Fed's policy as the Fed was. And one of the stats that you know that have been throwing out is that if you go back to February of 2022, we could see what the bond market was pricing in using the warp function on on Bloomberg World Interest Rate Probabilities. We could see that the bond market was pricing in for the Fed funds rate in February of 23. You know, just in this you know, where we had the last Fed meeting, mm. that it was going to be one percent. And this Fed meeting brought it up to 4.75%. And so the Fed, in its own dot pot projection back at this time last year, only expected the 2023 rate to be, I think, close to about 2.5%. And so both of these parties have been incredibly wrong. And so when you hear, you know, just follow the bond market and the bond market is this almost like all seeing third eye of what's <laughs> going to happen in the economy, take it with a big old grain of salt because the bond market is just as sensitive to new incoming data as well as indications of policy change as the Fed is itself. And so I think that there there's a limit to how much we can read into what the bond market is saying, um, because again, it will be extremely sensitive to the Fed data, which is why back three, four weeks ago, we wrote about how the bond market's ignoring the Fed and it's a problem and expect a repricing because we didn't think the Fed was going to budge. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, at 100%. Super well said. And, you know, I think the the last point that I want to get your thoughts on for a recession is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what kind of recession this is going to be, leaving the leaving the discussion of like soft or, or hard landings. But, you know, one point that I've heard you make that that resonated with me is, you know, if you kind of look at our last three recessions that we've had, those have been sort of uh, debt-based, almost financial crises type recessions, right? You had savings and loan, you had uh, the dot-com bubble burst, which is a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, irrational exuberance, I think. Uh, to use there was a debt component to it too, though. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And then obviously we had the great financial crisis in 2008. So I think that kind of memory of sort of a, um, a debt-based or a financial component to our, our recessions is kind of seared in everyone's brain, especially if you're a younger investor. You know, what kind of strikes me is this uh, recession that people are predicting almost it slots in more with the, this is a kind of a more typical business cycle recession of just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, expanding and contracting interest rates. So do you have any thoughts kind of on that or, or maybe dig in a little bit more? 
Yeah, I think this is such an important point to make, and this is this is a construct and an observation, uh, you know, that I learned from a great economist named Steve Rusciuto over at Mizuho, who wrote about this this in detail in his book Disequilibrium, which is a short, great read. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the point is that from the 1990s until the, through the last three recessions it's all had a major debt component. And when you have a debt-driven recession, debt-driven crisis, what tends to happen is that the recession is deeper and the recovery takes longer to come out of it because you have all the debt restructuring that is a part of that. Prior to the 1990s savings and loan crisis, the recessions that you had, to your point, were normal business cycle recessions. And this is coming after World War II up until 1989. And those recessions tended to be shorter and shallower, and they were more sensitive to the inflation cycle, as well as to, of course, the Fed's response to that inflation. And part of that is a function of the fact that during that time, you had the kind of economic environment where you had inflation and boom and bust cycles, whereas post-1990, you were in this globalization, deflationary kind of world where interest rates were were perpetually falling. And the end result was that you had more space between the recessions, but that space essentially allowed you to build up more imbalances in balance sheets. And maybe there's you know some kind of, of argument we could make about how more intervention within economies, central bank intervention ended up you know, kind of feeding into some of these imbalances. But when we look at today's cycle and we look at corporate balance sheets and consumer balance sheets, we go, okay, there's a lot of debt, but maybe there isn't as much sensitivity to shorter term interest rates as there were was in prior cycles. So I mentioned, you know, I, I interjected and, and on the, that 2000 uh, uh, cycle with the recession where you had, you know, of course, the dot-com bubble bursting, but there was a massive debt component where we had a corporate debt restructuring that happened in response or in the midst of that recession. So essentially what happened in the late 90s is that you had a surge in the usage of commercial paper. Commercial paper is short-term paper uh, that is used usually to fund short-term funding needs. Instead, what was happening Happening is that a lot of companies, in order to keep their borrowing costs low in the very near term, were using commercial paper in order to be able to fund long-term liabilities. That's what yeah. happened with Enron. That's what happened with the near-death experience with GE, with GE Capital. And so the end result was Fed raises interest rates, the cost of funding goes through the roof for all these companies, and then all of a sudden, essentially, it's that Warren Buffett tide goes out and you see a lot of people without swimming trunk, without their trunks on. So the end result is you had to restructure corporate balance sheets. The funny thing that's happened now is that after a decade of 
zero interest rate policy and QE, which kept long-term yields very suppressed, a lot of companies, as well as consumers using, using fixed rate mortgages, were essentially able to term out their debt, which meant that they're just borrowing long at really, really low yields. And so now as the Fed has been raising interest rates, you haven't seen that typical kind of shock to the financial system where all of a sudden the funding costs on a day-to-day basis have gone through the roof and nobody can pay their bills. You know, that's, that's what happens in these debt crises when liquidity gets too constrained. And so that would raise the point that you made is that maybe this is more of a business cycled kind of recession related to inflation, related to some Fed tightening versus a big debt crisis. The interesting thing, though, is that as interest rates have gone up in the past year, you've seen floating rate debt you through commercial paper and adjustable rate mortgages start to inch up. So they always say you sow the seeds of the next crisis and the last one. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that is what's happening, um, but maybe that debt crisis isn't today. The last caveat I'd make in this is that there are certainly pockets of the economy where there are debt issues, where people do have floating rate exposure or have refinancing needs that are getting pinched. And that's likely what we're seeing within the commercial real estate market today. The problem is it may not, or good news is, um, not problem, uh, may may not be large enough to be systemic and cause you know a broad debt restructuring throughout the entirety of the economy. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You know, I hadn't even really thought necessarily of that being kind of a, you know, a result of a of a weird yield curve, right, where people actually borrow long. So that duration mismatch, that classic duration mismatch, which humanity never really seems to figure out, even though history is full of uh, that examples of that going wrong. It's actually not a problem here. Does that kind of explain, I think, one of the the bits of surprise that I haven't, you know, really gotten a satisfactory answer about is, is that part of why you know, there hasn't been something that is broke, you know, when, when the Fed has been raising rates, because there was a whole camp of people that right, were kind of pointing to right around like 3%, right, which was about to what Powell got to when he first pivoted end of 2018, beginning of 2019. And it, I think it was surprising to a lot of people that he was able to hike rates as fast as he was, right? And housing has even pretty much been fine. And maybe that's because of a much lower, I think, you know, your statistic was around 5% of rates that are adjustable, and then there's also maybe this people, uh, a greater amount of people in long duration debt as opposed to short duration debt. Like, is that part of why nothing has really broken? Yeah, it's funny that you raise up that 2018 to 2019 time frame because we probably need to do uh, a greater deep dive into why the short-term funding markets freaked out so much during the Fed rate hikes through, you know, which really reached a fever pitch in 2018 when markets absolutely collapsed from an equity standpoint. And that's in response to the Fed saying, "We're our job is far from done, quantitative mm-hmm. tight balance sheet runoff is on autopilot and the markets were screaming and going, oh, no, 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 something's wrong. And you did have that liquidity crunch, which eventually caught or um, caused the Fed to pivot. And it was the one where the Fed really bailed markets out. They were able to put markets first because inflation was so benign. It was so very low. And the end result was that you saw this absolute plunge in real interest rates. And this is a point made by Barry Bannister over at Stiefel, which is that that 
peak in real interest rates, which was around one and a half percent, so close to where we were we are today, all the way down to negative one percent in the trough during COVID is what sparked such a huge bubble in long-duration assets, long-duration being things like tech, speculative assets, um, uh, growth, you know, high growth, high multiple, because money was perpet- was was increasingly becoming more and more free after after inflation. And so why the Fed did that might be, you might look back and say that could have been a mistake because we could have had some sort of you know shallow slowdown, reset things, and then you know, sort of moved on from there. But instead, the Fed was cutting interest rates with, with unemployment near a 50-year low at about 3.5% at the time. Um, inflation was non-existent, so they weren't really having an issue with their mandate. And you were starting to see some early signs of slowing down within things like job open started to to peak back in late 2018, but nothing that was so nefarious to say the Fed had to really step in and save the day. But in this one scenario, they prioritized markets and markets loved it. And you saw huge rallies within growth stocks, which of course, as I mentioned, reached the fever pitch for them in in late 2021 when growth traded at over 100% premium to value. Um, and of course, that was unwound in 22, you know, creating its own kind of degrees of instability and, and you know, issues when you're coming out of a bubble. So I think when we look back, if, if there really was one mistake, the mistake maybe didn't start with when they were ignoring inflation in, in 21. I think the mistake started back in 2018 with that pivot. Um, but obviously, there were issues within short-term funding markets at that time. And it's interesting that those same kinds of issues have not materialized this time around. And part of that, and it's too much detail for this, could be you know, could be a result of some of the COVID era project protections that they put into markets, kind of you know uh, uh, safety backstops. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny to go back to that period of time. You know, when you when you look at the Fed's dual mandate, nowhere in there is, hey, we should be protecting markets, right, as long as our other two mandates are met. Why do you think the Fed made that decision? And I know, like, for me, when I kind of think about this, a lot of that comes into the, the wealth effect, right, and the the very high correlation in between the price of financial assets and, and spending. Is that is that the reason that's kind of powering this Fed's desire, you know, all else being okay with their dual mandate to to keep markets elevated? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that actually raises an interesting peculiarity from the last two months, which is that when the Fed was asked about easing financial conditions uh, and the fact that financial conditions were easier as of the last Fed meeting than they were when the Fed started raising rates, Powell went, absolutely not. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. And we're yeah. all looking at the Goldman Sachs financial conditions or the Bloomberg financial conditions and going, "Are we? Uh, what, what planet are you on? Because they do <laughs> look easier today. And the reason is that he was using and he was essentially um, uh, mirroring a speech that Lael Brainerd had given one of the Fed governors uh, about how financial conditions, the the index that they were using was one that was actually rather narrow, that was just real interest rates. And so what that does and why I bring this up is that if you're just looking at real interest rates, it actually ignores the whole impact of the wealth effect 
on the economy, on markets, et cetera. And it also ignores the impact of credit spreads on the ability for companies to fund themselves. So when we look at the whole purpose of quantitative easing, if you go back to the early kind of rationales of why they did this, quantitative easing starting back in 2010-11 was to effectively push people out the risk curve, meaning that if you suppress the return on safe assets, what it forces people to do is to go into riskier assets. And the idea behind that is that it then will lift the the price of riskier assets, spur more investment, spur um, better consumption through the wealth effect. And so I find it fascinating then that the Fed at a point when the wealth effect was such a large contributor to the consumption of durable goods and housing, um, you know, and and kind of broad rebounding consumption in the U.S. in 21 and early 22, that they would choose to ignore it in their definition of financial conditions, and it it brings kind of the last point, which is that I think you could make an argument that the easing in financial conditions over the last six months or so have actually contributed some of this to some of this reacceleration in data, which is, you know, argument that that Fed definition of financial conditions is likely too narrow. Yeah. I I, I love that, that whole line of thought, Cameron. And I, I would just, the only thing I would change slightly is I would change the wording of pushing people out the risk curve to blowing an intention, intentional bubble in long duration assets. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, to kind of maybe dovetail with what you were saying before, you know, if we look at in the line of casualties of 2022, that's why you had kind of long bonds and tech stocks, you know, being at the, at the very worst of the worst, right? Because those yep. are those, those sort of long duration assets. I just, you know, it's, it is interesting because I, I actually, you kind of see this debated, especially on FinTwit is, hey, does the Fed understand what they're doing? Are they just a bunch of PhDs with no clue? I fall in the camp that these this is actually a very intelligent group of people that has an enormous amount of information and control over markets. So I guess this is almost just a very kind of high level question to put to you, but do you think they understood what they were doing when they kind of blew that duration bubble? And what was the hope? What was the what were they kind of hoping for in terms of an outcome? So there's a great analogy that I I think is really helpful when we're thinking about the impact of QT and kind of or QE and, and blowing a bubble in in long duration assets. Um, and it comes from Mark Blythe, and he talks about this idea of you know if you wanted to fill up a glass of water, and in order to, in that glass of water is, is your, you know, your consumption economy. Um, you could either put it under the faucet and just fill it directly, or you could flood the house with water and then eventually that glass would be filled up. <laughs> and so with this idea that quantitative easing is an incredibly indirect way to spur consumption and spur economic growth and that you have to essentially inflate a lot of other things to eventually get to the one thing that you're trying to stimulate. And so, you know, I think when they think, when they talked about it, if you recall going back a few years ago, they would continuously talk about how monetary policy can only do so much. You need the component of fiscal policy in order to really achieve uh, you know, better, um, better 
economic growth. And you can see it in the data that you know, post sequestration, government spending was a continual drag on, on overall GDP growth. And so I think what it what it raises the question is that, you know, what does the next cycle look like when it comes to this pairing of fiscal and monetary policy? Because we kind of let the cat out of the bag that if you don't want to have a deep recession that's prolonged in the face of a massive shock to the economy, i.e. COVID, um, mm-hmm. just give people money. And then all of a sudden consumption is okay. But then the other side of that is that, okay, well, if you spur consumption, but then supply chains are shut down, then you know, the end result is that you probably are going to have inflation as you have all of these, these uh, this mismatch between supply and demand. So we don't know, um, you know what the next crisis is going to look like. And we don't know what the next Congress is going to look like during that crisis, but clearly there's lessons to say of, of, you know, if you don't want to see consumption fall during a shock, you can just give people money instead of, you know, doing the proverbial flood the house in order to fill the glass. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny that you kind of bring up this, uh, this idea of fiscal response as opposed to monetary response. And if I were to sort of take the other side of the coin and try to defend the Fed a little bit, um, you know, you could we, you could argue, I think, pretty convincingly that the reason they that there's been this uh, kind of mandate creep on the part of the Fed and the, the the kind of obvious need to do more is because our government just can't get it together. And you know, you you start to hear a lot of talk even a year or two ago about kind of this baton being passed from monetary to fiscal. And in a way that that kind of happened in the U.S., right? We had the Inflation Reduction Act. But, you know, without going into politics here, I'm not sure that was really that money was really directed where it needed to be, right, to solve our, our biggest problems. And even in the 2008, 2009, you know, great financial crisis when we were staring into the abyss, right, and people were worried about bread lines, even then it was hard to get Congress to act. And we kind of gave a bazooka to the Fed, right, in the form of QE, which has obviously persisted until this day. So, you know, I guess I don't have uh, so much of a question to you as just a statement, but uh, actually, you know what, I'll pose it as a question. How much of this irregularity that we're seeing in markets is a result of kind of an over-exuberant Fed or uh, a government that just can't get it together? Well, I think that we have to kind of look at the broad global world in order to get a sense of, you know, how unique we are in mm our issues or our challenges. And even if we're thinking about the inflation challenge, we know that, you know, we in the U.S. did a lot more fiscal stimulus uh, than a lot of other countries did. And yet a lot of countries are experiencing the same kind of of inflationary scenario, uh, which would suggest that, you know, that there, of course, was a demand component. Of course, U.S. demand does help spur a lot of global demand, given our, our ravenous appetite for, for imports. Mm. And but I think that there's also this aspect aspect of the fact that when you shut an economy down, even for a short period of time, reopening it does create inflationary dynamics, which raises a question about 
how inflationary China's reopening, given it's it's you know, now a couple years after the us, uh, how how inflationary that will will ultimately be. You know, the one thing that will be interesting as we navigate over the next um, uh, election cycle, now that we're in, um, you know, we're kind of starting to see some early parts of the of the twenty twenty four election start to be debated, is this idea of the median voter theorem, and it's this comes from Marco Papich, and he talks talks about this idea that back in 2010, 2011, and coming out of the great financial crisis, the median voter cared about deficits. They cared a lot about deficits. That's why the Tea Party was elected. And you had really this push where the thing that that voters cared about more than anything was controlling the debt. And that allowed politicians to say, okay, if that's the priority, then we will cut spending everywhere else. We'll do sequestration um, and we'll prioritize debt reduction over growth coming out of the great financial crisis, which is one of the reasons why the growth was so slow coming out of of that low. And he makes the point that in today's world, today's median voter, there are still cohorts that really care about debt, but they care about other things more. And maybe that means that in the next election cycle, you or even in this coming debt ceiling debate, you won't see as vehement of a focus on controlling debt levels. But I would argue you're start. I'm starting to pick up a little bit more about that where people are going, isn't the debt a problem? Um, so it'll <laughs> yeah. be interesting to see how that, how that tone shift changes because that will really help us determine how much then politicians will prioritize that in their fight. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, It is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. We started out before we got on this recording. I said I was going to ask you about earnings, and here we are. We're about uh, you know forty minutes into this recording, and I haven't even asked you, which is the sign of a good conversation. But I still I do want to get your thoughts. So I'm actually going to share my my screen. You did a great sort of uh, scenario analysis, uh, basically of what we might be looking at in terms of earnings for this coming year. So would you mind just kind of walking listeners through like what do you see the kind of three broad scenarios here? And how did you come up with this? Sure. So let's start with consensus and Mm. as our baseline for where current expectations are uh, going into 2023. Right now, consensus expects earnings to be about flat, slightly down as we go to 2023 versus 2022 levels. And that slightly down is a mixture or combination of a little bit of revenue growth, a little bit of margin expansion, and then there's some funky things going on in below the line items, um, you know, once you once you get past the operating line that's that's causing that that 
decline in earnings. One interesting thing, if you look at the breakdown of of what sectors are driving this decline, uh, it really is two main sectors, energy and materials, um, as well as healthcare and and technology are actually expected uh, to have earnings declines as well. But we've also seen big cuts to these estimates if we look uh, from summer of last year, which was expecting 10, 11% growth to that about $240 plus a share line. Uh, those estimates have been marched down materially and probably the area where they've been marched down the most is in, con- in consumer discretionary. Back just a few months ago, the consumer discretionary sector was expected to have 30% earnings growth. And now it's just sitting at 6% today. So far more well aligned with an environment where growth is slowing, top line revenue growth is slowing, um, and thus earnings you know, growth will slow as well. So the three scenarios that I laid out is the first one being we have kind of really no landing in the economy where we still have top line revenue growth. This would suggest an environment where you still have inflation. Remember, revenues are a nominal number, so they include the benefit of higher prices. Uh, And we'll talk about how inflation and higher prices actually do help company margins a lot. But here is where um, in the first scenario, thinking about mild revenue growth, three to 4%, and then some margin compression instead of margin expansion, which is baked into current earnings, with the idea that as revenue growth falls and slows um, from 2022's 15% level of revenue growth, you should see multiple compression. So here's just a little bit of background on how this works, which is it's, it's a dynamic called incremental margins, and it's really, really important. It what it what happens when companies have a lot of revenue growth is they get more fixed cost absorption. So think of a factory, and that when you produce more out of that factory, that overhead gets eaten up. And what happens is that when revenues grow, let's just use simple basic numbers. Let's say revenues are growing zero to five percent. You make a thirty percent margin when they're growing at that level. But when revenues grow five to ten percent, you make a forty percent margin. So all of a sudden the benefit from each incremental dollar of revenue starts to go higher. So it's one of the reasons why even in this inflationary environment, now everybody's worried about costs going up and labor costs are up and raw material costs are up. Well guess what? Companies had pricing power. So when they have pricing power, their revenues are growing a lot. And when the revenues are growing a lot, they get better incremental margins. And the end result was 2021, 2022, we saw record margins in the S&P 500. Now, the problem with incremental margins is that when your revenue growth slows, you lose that incremental margin benefit. Mm. And so the end result is that we think it's possible that even as revenue growth just moderates back to a more normal pace of, you know, here we're saying about 4%, uh, that you would actually see margin compression uh, simply not because of, of, you know, some, you know, bad dynamic in the economy, just losing the benefit of incremental margins. So what that would lead you to is a moderately down EPS year, but down down mid to high single digits. And that would suggest a scenario where you have no economic recession, but you have an earnings recession. 
The other opposite of that is let's say you have no landing. Um, that's another scenario we look at. And that no landing also includes higher inflation, inflation that remains higher for longer, which means companies still have pricing power. And let's say you still get revenue growth that's still in that mid to high single digits. And then you don't get as much margin compression. You still get some because you're going from 15% revenue growth down to let's call it six or seven. And in that scenario, you get moderate earnings growth. So something that looks like four to five percent. The last scenario is that if you do have a recession, revenues decline some, not a lot. We're not going to say that they decline, you know, uh, they fall off a cliff. Remember, it's a nominal number. So you're still having inflation, um, but real growth is going, you know, could be negative in that scenario. And so the end result is you have a slight decline to earnings. You would expect even more margin compression just because of that falling growth. And the end result is, you know, a mid-teens down. I think the, the, the thing to press on that the most is that you, you likely, in a scenario where revenues are declining, see a lot more margin compression than what I kind of back of the envelope put in here. But, you know, I don't want to scare, like, you don't want to scare and say, okay, here's this like worst case scenario. You can make it, you know, all stocks can go to zero. Of course they can. Um, <laughs> um, but it just depends on your assumptions. The last point to make in this is that if we look at 2024, 2024 is um, set to grow based on current consensus about 10%, which is a big reacceleration. And it's based on margins going to a new all time high, as well as really robust revenue growth of about 5%. What I'd mm. say there is it depends on the timing of the recession, meaning that if a recession is not a 2023 issue, but a 2024 issue, that 24 number may be too high. And let's say a recession hits in 23, then you would argue that your, your base to start off of is going to be much lower. So you won't have as much growth in 24. And then of course, you know, the last scenario would be if, you know, if we don't have a landing in 24 either and, and, you know, and, and it takes even longer for the feds tighten to work its way through the economy and et cetera, et cetera, then maybe that number is correct. But I would argue that this idea that's baked into every forecast right now, whether you're looking at. 2024 EPS, the Fed's own dot plot, uh, Bloomberg consensus economics. Everybody has a big reacceleration in 24. And that's where, if you're looking two years forward, some rationality and reasonableness of like, okay, if, if we don't have this big kind of correct correction immediately, what does that mean for 24 growth? Yeah. All right, Cameron, there was there was a lot to unpack there, which is awesome. I want to get one, uh, just one sort of assumption before we kind of dig into the details of the model that you laid out here. So, you know, when it comes to translating earnings into or where earnings fall when it comes to asset prices, there are two components, right, at least to, to stocks, right? There's the multiple that you're getting, and then there's the earnings. So are we assuming that the multiple is basically going to stay where it's at in, in 2022, which is, I think, around 15 times, something like that? We bottomed at 15 and a half times in both October and June. Uh, back two weeks ago at the peak in the equity market, we got all the way up to 18.7 times. So pretty expensive. Pretty expensive there. Yeah. So basically, I guess my, my question to you here is these, these scenarios are awesome. That idea of companies as they grow larger kind of sucking up fixed costs makes a ton of, I've never actually heard that before, but it makes a ton of intuitive sense, right? Because 
people like to say, oh, well, hey, if we kind of vertically integrate this or assume more fixed costs, then you get, uh, you know, there's a kind of a cost benefit as you're growing. But yeah, then when it turns around, you're stuck with kind of fixed costs. But I've, I've sort of seen that happen uh, in companies as well. So that makes a, a ton of sense. Um, I guess, what are these sort of projections here in terms of the the kind of the base case being a minus 6% in terms of in terms of uh, earnings growth, maybe a bull case being 4% and a bear case being minus 13%. How does that all translate into, uh, you know, what, what your expectation is for equities this coming year? Yeah, it depends on the path then of the multiples. And mm. one of the issues that we think is with the biggest bull cases is that they, in order to get to big upside in the S&P 500 from year to date, you know, that 20% plus upside, you have to assume not only strong earnings growth, but you also have to assume multiples going back to the pandemic era levels, meaning mm. what we would argue were bubble multiples fueled by that incredible stimulus we were talking about earlier where real interest rates were negative 1% and money supply growth was you know, reached a peak of 20%, right? So that kind of high valuation is justified with that kind of liquidity. But given the fact that liquidity isn't getting any looser, real interest rates are positive one and a half percent, money supply is shrinking, that would argue that you cannot justify going back up to those multiples. So to get to 20% upside, not only do I have to assume that really hefty multiple, but I have to assume strong earnings growth. And in a scenario, what would drive strong earnings growth? Well, economic growth staying really strong and inflation staying really elevated because that's where I, I get that that revenue growth. That's where I get my, uh, my margin expansion. And in that scenario, if growth is strong and inflation is strong, the Fed is not easing. Mm -hmm. The Fed is not adding liquidity to this environment. So you can't put that kind of high earnings growth with a very peaky kind of multiple on it because those two are unlikely to exist at the same time um, to be able to justify that kind of upside. Then on the downside, you know, it depends on on how you know scared you want to get on if you go and like, oh, well, past multiples troughed it, you know, 10 times in this cycle and 12 times in that cycle. What we've been trying to do is be balanced and say, look, Multiples last year bottomed at 15 and a half times, but the earnings base was high, was much higher back at those prior bottoms. So we're dealing with a lower earnings number today. And we think that an average multiple, if you go back and just look at the pre-pandemic average, so let's remove the skew that happened during the pandemic era because it pulls all the numbers up, that that looks something that's closer to 16 and a half, 17 times. The, the thing to always remember with multiples though, and in talking about it, I think is really important is that there's always the first part of a multiple move that is driven by fundamentals, that is driven by liquidity levels and where interest rates are. Uh, but there's always a second part of a multiple move that's driven by emotion. And that's how you get markets putting a trough multiple on trough mm. earnings when mm. 
expectations are so blown out, growth is blown out, and that's what makes for incredible buying opportunities in the you know near the bottom of cycles. And so, you know, when we think about price targets or where things could go, you could put all these these multiples on different earnings levels, um, but just be aware that sometimes they can happen very quickly for a short period of time, or maybe they don't even get to those low levels because you know because you don't have that that true kind of emotional response kick in. The last point to make in all of this is that valuation is an awful timing tool. It's terrible. So it is best not to try to time the market based on where valuations are going. We can say, okay, there's been support at different levels, but valuations have little predictive power on a one-year forward return. And it's just because they can go high and stay high, go low, stay ho- stay low. Um, they, you know, they, they tend to persist. And so when we're looking at what the path forward for returns can be, high valuations today do not necessarily mean that you're going to have low returns in the next 12 months. But what they do mean is that you're likely to have more muted returns over the next five to 10 years. Now, the problem with that is, or the the, the key thing to point in that is that low returns can be achieved in many different ways, meaning you could have a low return period over a 10-year period, you could have a crash and then an eventual clawback, something that looks like 2000 to 2014, where it took that long to break even for the NASDAQ. Big crash took a long t- long time to, to claw back. Another example of low returns is in the 70s, where we just did a sideways chop um, all through all through the 70s. Another time of low returns would be if you have a big, huge bubble and then a crash, and then you look at that period and you, you, know, you have a period of low returns. So that's where combining these shorter term, uh, or sorry, medium and long term looks at valuation and where earnings are going, you have to also consider the shorter term move movers like technicals, positioning, sentiment. And it's balancing that short term where you go look at January's rally, you know, driven driven by by technicals, driven by the fact that you 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 had a big huge shift in positioning from being very short to being neutral, that you respect that. You respect the shorter term move. And then you take a step back and say, okay, from a medium term standpoint, based on where we where we trade today, is this justified? And you're always trying to balance that short term in making your, you know, even the long most long-term investor has short-term decision making needs that they have to make. Um you know, for liquidity needs, for example, you have to balance that short term with that medium term and long term view and know that there will be times that they disagree. The last question that I have for you here, and maybe where we can end it is, you know, we've been discussing a lot of things here with like kind of a, a relatively short sort of time frame, right? Like what are our earnings ex- uh, expectations for next year, right? Or what is inflation going to do over the next uh, the next year? I'd love to kind of get a sense of what your secular kind of view is, uh, specifically when it comes to inflation, right? So kind of, you know, abstracting away the Fed's uh, new, you know, super core inflation metric, like, do you think that we are going to be in an environment of inflation as opposed to the, the secular environment of deflation that we've had this past 40 years? And if so, what, how does that translate into assets. And you can either take that in terms of the stock market, which is what we've been talking about, or long duration assets or or whatever you feel most appropriate. 
Yeah, I think this is the ultimate question, which is that are we in a world now where after 40 years of interest rates making lower lows and lower highs at each successive cycle, are we entering into a world where interest rates or inflation start making successive higher highs and higher lows? And I think that it really does remain to be seen if the impacts of the of the pandemic really cause a lasting secular change. If we think about the three big buckets of what drove the low inflation as well as lower interest rates over the last 40 years, we all talk about globalization, demographics, and technology. And we know we can still count on technology to be a source of deflationary impulse, meaning that it creates efficiency and can drive lower prices. I think that we're not so certain today if the past 40 years of of globalization are going to continue at the same speed that they did. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we go into a fully deglobalized world, but it just means that maybe we, we don't have as much of an abundance of that incremental cost of production being ever and ever lower, right? That that's mm-hmm. that was the key source of this falling inflation. It's just that you could continuously find incremental units of production um, uh, that allowed you to find lower and lower prices. Uh, so I think that that's a question mark. And then the last question mark is um, – is of course on demographics and how inflationary versus deflationary they actually are. Right now, it seems to be that some of our demographics are actually contributing to inflation, meaning that the fact that so many people left the labor force that were at the high end of the age range of working age population post the pandemic, that that actually is causing some of these labor shortages and thus leading to more labor and and wage inflation. Uh, And so So, but then you have the scenario of Japan where everybody goes, well, demographics is why they've been stuck in deflation. Um, I think there's also a large aspect of a lot of price controls in Japan that are probably, um, you know, one of the, the biggest contributors to that. So I think one of the maybe a baseline that we can use is that you know it's it's hard to know um but that maybe that true low of sub 1% on the 10 year yield during the covid pandemic um uh boom and all that stimulus maybe that is the low in yields that we see over the next decade or two, because we have some of these forces shifting in the other direction. It will be really interesting to see how inflation progresses in the coming year, because we will have gotten past the impact of the pandemic disruptions to supply chains. So a great chart is to overlay durable goods inflation, which peaked in February of 2022 with the, uh, uh, with the, price to move a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles. And it's the same chart, which just is to (laughs) say that durable goods inflation was a function of very tight supply chains and then this shock higher in demand. 
And one of the key questions will be, does this inflationary episode that we have go from being this exogenous shock to the system, which created pockets of unique inflation because of these shocks, does it become from an exogenous shock, does it become endogenous? Does it become part of the system, meaning that it perpetuates, it remains higher? And part of this gets back to the question then of how much of this inflation the Fed actually caused, meaning that how much of this inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, right? And we can argue that there's certain places we can draw direct lines, such as in the housing market, keeping interest rates super, super low, contributed to housing inflation because it it allowed affordability to stay attractive even as prices were soaring. So I, I don't have a definite answer other than to say it's going to be darn interesting because we're going to get further and further away from what we can say are exactly pandemic era disruptions. And as we get further away, we're going to see how structural some of these inflationary impulses have thus become. Yeah, I honestly came in violent agreement with the vast majority of that. And just closing on that idea of it being structural, I think the other component that's a little bit softer, so you almost don't hear it discussed as much, but it's the psychological component of inflation as well. And that's that's something that you don't really see in the numbers and is very hard to analyze. So it almost feels a little social studies or, or kind of soft science to talk about. But that's also a big, a big component as well and what makes it so difficult to, to finally defeat. Yeah, so. and that's why the Fed looks at inflation expectations so much. And, and if you recall back in June, it was the reason when they saw that University of Michigan survey show a big uptick in inflation expectations. That's what got them to move to 75 basis points. That was yeah. the spark because they are horribly afraid of inflation expectations becoming unanchored. And they continue to look at these inflation expectation surveys and say, oh, no problem here. Inflation expectations are purely anchored. Now, there's lots of issues with these surveys, um, but that is one of the reasons why there's a great Fed paper from quite a few years ago about inflation expectations and how huge inflationary shocks can get embedded in the psyches of people and that they come to expect higher prices. And when you accept expect higher prices, you accept higher prices, meaning that mm. you don't push back against price increases. And so it will be really interesting to see how embedded this episode will become in the psyche and if it becomes something that is more entrenched, um, because of course that is the thing the Fed is most afraid about, is that it becomes comes entrenched uh, into the psyche and it becomes something that's much harder to control, which is their biggest pushback against people saying, why would you why would you sacrifice a job market that's really strong just to get inflation from three to two? And their argument is because we're afraid that it becomes entrenched and it becomes something we can't control because is it bleeds into other parts of the economy, more and more parts of the, you know, of the supply chains and different parts of the economy, the end result is that it becomes further and further away from the Fed's reach. And that is what they're afraid of. Yeah, there's actually I'm, I'm sharing my screen here. I accidentally for a second picked the wrong tweet. But there's a great tweet from Ben Carlson. Uh, you know, he's showing US retail sales and kind of this crazy spike in the post pandemic era. And the quote is, the Great Depression turned an entire generation into frugal misers. The pandemic turned us all into raging spenders. And it's funny that that just rings really true because, you know, my parents were also or my grandparents were part of that uh, Great Depression age. And 
yeah, they had a very particular view about debt and money and spending. And, you know, I kind of wonder the Fed was sort of, you know, putting their thumb on the scale, you know, so to speak, in terms of uh, encouraging the, you know, us to spend. And I wonder how much of a lasting, uh, you know, they might have actually got their wish a little bit too much. Uh, yeah, I remember growing up, my my grandmother, who is a depression baby, uh, she uh, she taught me her favorite treat when she was a kid was saltine crackers and uh, with with powdered sugar and milk milk mixed together as like that was their big sweet treat. Meanwhile, I think I just spent $4.50 on one macaroon last week. So um, clearly we are of a different generation. <laughs> oh my God, me too. Yeah, my, my grandparents were, God, God love them and bless their souls, but they were the type of, you know, they had like a washer and dryer that sat unused because they didn't want to use the electricity, uh, right. Or the, or the, you know, buy this, so they just did everything themselves. It's crazy. But, uh, Cameron, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion and I'm honestly still unpacking a lot of the ideas that you introduced. If folks want to find out more about you or the good work that you do, what's the best way to, to do that? Yeah, definitely. So you can follow me on Twitter at Cameron Dawson. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn where I'll post a bunch of stuff. And then I think we've now created a sign-up page for our newsletters on the Ooh. New Edge Wealth website. So it's just newedgewealth.com. Uh, and you can fill out a little form about uh, in order to get on some of the distribution for for my weekly that, that, that our team produces, which is really great. So uh, thank you so much, though, for this. This has been a fantastic conversation. Excellent. Thanks, Cameron. We'll link all that in the show notes. And guys, I highly uh, recommend that you go and follow the work that Cameron and her team puts out. But for now, Cameron, this has been a ton of fun and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much. 